Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Today's reading is taken from Acts 8, verses 4 to 25. This can be found on page 1101 of the Church Bibles. That's Acts 8, verses 4 to 25. Philip in Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Simon the sorcerer. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money, You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks, Matt, for introducing me uh, a little bit. 
I was going to say, well, I was a minister in London for 30 years, but I grew up in Sheffield, so Christina and I have come back here, and um, I guess we know something of what it is to be, to come new to a church like this. We're carrying on with Acts. Let's pray as we uh, come to this passage that Christine's just read for us. Lord, we pray that in your mercy you would amaze us afresh with the Christian message this evening. Amaze us with the impact that it's had in the past and the impact it can have on our own lives and the lives of those around us to this very day. And so bring glory to, to the name of Jesus our Saviour. Amen. Please have uh, that first part of Acts 8, which we're looking at tonight, open in front of you if you can. Now, as we come to uh, chapter 8 in our series in Acts, a gear change takes place. Up until this point, the story of the early church has been focused on events in Jerusalem. But we can recall Jesus' words to his apostles back in chapter 1, verse 8, that they would be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we shouldn't actually be surprised to find our passage this evening telling us how the gospel word came to Samaria. Samaria was not far from Jerusalem in distance terms, but the people there were very different. The Samaritans had a religion which was a sort of muddled version of Old Testament religion. Sometimes we come across perversions of Christianity, which are muddled versions. Think of Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. For the gospel to take root in Samaria was a remarkable step. But as we meet and look at this this evening, we need to ask why this passage is here. In particular, we need to do some thinking about what it has got to say to us today. We live in a world that is far removed from that of the Samaritans 2,000 years ago. Well, we should note that at the start and the end of our passage, there's a reference to the word, the word of the Lord and the proclamation of Jesus. I think that gives us a clue as to the theme of this story that Luke wanted to include, chose to include. It's a passage which underlines the unique and wonderful power of the gospel word. And that's something that needs to be underlined for us today. Our circumstances can lead us to lose sight of this. When the church seems weak, it's important to be reminded that the gospel word can reach anyone and everyone. And when we despair of ourselves and the struggles we have to be faithful to Jesus, we must have confidence in the power of the gospel to transform us. This entire chapter 8 is actually about the ministry of a man called Philip. He was one of the seven men appointed in chapter 6 from within the Hellenistic Jewish community. Philip was one of those who were scattered by the persecution that followed the martyrdom of Stephen. After, this, after that, he, he never seems to have gone back to Jerusalem, in fact. We meet him again in Acts 21 when he's living in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. By then, he's known as Philip the evangelist. But that title shouldn't deceive us. Back in chapter 8, verse 4, the beginning of our passage, we're told about those like Philip who were preaching the word wherever they went. But that word preaching is a bit misleading. It's not necessarily to do with delivering a sermon. It's about speaking the gospel as opportunities arose. This passage is able to give us all confidence, boldness, as we speak the gospel word to others today. 
And we'll be reminded here of how it is a unique and wonderful message. This gospel word continues to have a unique, wonderful power today, both in our own lives as Christians and in the lives of others outside us. Now, within this account in verses 4 to 25, we find that there are two issues which are highlighted by Luke. There's the issue of the reception of the Holy Spirit amongst the Samaritans, and there's the issue of the impact that the gospel word had on this particular man called Simon. It's striking that in both cases, we tend to ask questions which Luke doesn't answer. So Luke doesn't tell us how Philip and then Peter and John knew that the Samaritans had not received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And similarly, Luke doesn't tell us what happened to Simon after verse 24. Now, the fact that we're not given answers to the questions we might ask of this passage is a clue, perhaps, that we're not listening to the passage in the right way. As we look at these verses, we must be ready to listen to what God wants us to hear through what Luke has written. Luke is telling us about the unique and wonderful power of the gospel word. That is what really matters. It's an encouragement for us all to be shaped by this gospel, to be involved in the work of this gospel in our own day. So here's the first point. Uh, let's start then by looking, you see, at the unique nature of the gospel word as we focus on verses 4 to 13. After the general introduction of verse 4 to this new phase in the work of the gospel, we're told that Philip ended up in a city of Samaria and he proclaimed the Messiah there. So you see, in general, believers from Jerusalem were scattered through Judea and Samaria, and they took up opportunities to speak about Jesus in the places where they ended up. But in verse 5, we find Philip has the opportunity to give a talk to a city in Samaria in which he spoke about Jesus as the Messiah. Now, in the verses that follow, the big point is the contrast between Philip's ministry and that of this man Simon that we're told about. And this contrast stresses the unique nature of the gospel word that Philip was preaching. The Christian message, you see, is not just any old spiritual message. That stress needs to be made because superficially we might think the ministry of Philip, the ministry of Simon were basically the same. So we're told about the signs that Philip did in verses 6 and 7. And we're told that the people paid close attention to what he said. Similarly, Simon, a sorcerer, practiced magic that astonished the Samaritans, according to verse 9, and they paid close attention to him. So two ministries which impress the Samaritans and which lead them to pay close attention to what both Philip and Simon say. Yet in reality, these ministries are very different because of what they say. When the crowds pay close attention to what Philip said, they hear him speaking of Jesus, this man Jesus, as the Messiah. And the description of the signs that Philip did in verse 7 seems to deliberately echo those done by Jesus. But when the Samaritans listen to Simon, what is the message they hear? We're told that he boasted that he was someone great, and all sorts of people declared that Simon is rightly called the great power of God. So in the one case, Philip points to Jesus and his greatness as the promised Christ. In the other, Simon points to his own greatness as a human being, 
even if he distresses up the claim in religious language. So you can sum this up really by saying that Philip pointed to the true king in Jesus. Simon pointed to himself as a false or pseudo-king. One ministry glorifies the unique person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other glorifies a human individual. Those ministries are very different. And it's in grasping this that we appreciate the unique nature of the gospel word. In verse 12, we're told the Samaritans believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ. They believed and were baptized, both men and women. And verse 13 tells us that Simon himself believed and was baptized as well. We'll see what that's about shortly. But the point to note now is the unique nature of the gospel word. The message about Jesus proclaims Jesus as God's Christ and speaks of the kingdom where he rules as God's king. You see, if we're willing to accept that Jesus is indeed God's Christ, it has enormous consequences, massive consequences. We're saying that he, rightfully, is the ruler of all and is the ruler of our own lives. We're saying that he died for us on the cross as our savior. He didn't die there as a criminal. In accepting the gospel word, we accept that Jesus is this unique figure who is God in human form. And so it is that all other religions and belief systems which focus on the greatness and the power of mere human beings are completely different. The gospel word points to Jesus. All other messages and ideas point in one form or another to human greatness, as Simon did here amongst the Samaritans. This unique message about a unique person called Jesus, who is the Christ, is truly like no other. And it properly points to the greatness of Jesus as the true king. Nevertheless, we should note that it's easy for human beings in every age to abuse this unique message. Such is the perversity of our human heart that we can misuse the name of Christ to glorify ourselves or our human institutions. It's happened all down history, continues in our own day. Submitting to the unique figure of Jesus Christ means submitting to his rule, his agenda for our lives. It's a dreadful thing to misuse the name of Jesus, to pursue our own personal agendas, to glorify ourselves, to glorify other people. Today, people are suspicious of human authority and power. The only way to avoid the abuse of authority and powers to submit to the rule of King Jesus. And Christian leaders need to live that out in order to give that gospel word credibility, just like Philip did really here in Samaria. The unique nature of the gospel word, which points to Jesus as the king, needs to be lived out by us. It can't be just words. Come to our second point then. We're going to skip verses 14 to 17 for the moment, but next we're going to focus on verses 18 to 24. These verses speak of the unique authority of the gospel word, and the focus in these verses is very much on Simon's response to the gospel word that Philip had brought to Samaria. It's striking that whereas Simon had amazed the people of Samaria, verse 9, verse 11, we now find in verse 13 that Simon is amazed by Philip's ministry. It indicates the recognition of a higher authority in the person of Jesus whom Philip preached. And Simon himself believed and was baptized. 
But what sort of belief did Simon actually have? We mustn't assume that it's true belief simply because we're told he believed and because he was baptized. You can perhaps recall a, couple, a few months ago when we looked at the end of John chapter 2, we learned that Jesus himself was wary of the belief that people sometimes profess to have. Well, we're given a hint of what was going on with Simon when we hear in verse 13 what he was astonished at. He was astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw being done by Philip. He seems to view Philip's ministry, you see, through his own ministry and the perspective of his own ministry and to ignore the Christ to whom Philip was pointing. And this is all borne out, I think, as we come to focus on verses 18 to 24. Uh, we'll deal with the issue of the Holy Spirit a bit later, but for now we just need to note how Simon reacts to the ministry of the apostles Peter and John. In verses 18 and 19, he offers them money in order to have this ministry of giving others the Holy Spirit. Now, as I've said already, Luke doesn't tell us how the gift of the Holy Spirit was made visible. But Simon wants that ability he say, he's, that he sees in the apostles for himself. And note that when our translation speaks of ability in verse 19, it, it is literally the word authority. Give me this authority. Simon's desire is for power, a power he can use then for his own ends. And he's so keen on this that he's willing to offer money for it. He wants to use Christianity and the gospel word for his own ends continues, as I've said, to be a danger today. We must appreciate the unique authority of the gospel word if we are to avoid using the Christian message for our own ends. And the unique authority of this message, the gospel word, is clarified as we listen to what Peter says in response to this request that Simon had. The gospel word, you see, mustn't be muddled or twisted to fit with human agendas. It loses its authority and its power when that happens. Now, the first matter that Peter underlines in verse 20 is that the gospel word is the gift of God. It can't be bought with money. The message about Jesus Christ is unique because it comes entirely as a gift. We cannot pay anything, do anything, offer anything to receive it and the Holy Spirit. Uniquely amongst world religions and world ideas, the Christian message proclaims a gift. You don't have to gain deep knowledge. You don't have to be young and fit. You don't have to be wealthy, famous. You simply have to say yes to all that Jesus is and receive the gift he offers. Well, what is that gift? An important feature of the gift of the gospel word is found here in verses 21 to 23 or seen here. Peter speaks about Simon's heart. Peter says that his heart is not right before God. And that's the reason why Simon has no share or part in the ministry of Peter and of Christians in general. Literally, Simon has no share or part in this word that has been the focus of Philip's ministry. Simon, you see, may have professed belief in Philip's message and been baptized, but his heart has not been transformed. And it's this heart transformation that comes from a true reception of the gospel word about Jesus Christ, which makes that gospel word unique. No other message has the authority and the power to change the human heart. It's remarkable. 
in these circumstances that the gospel invitation and the gift is still open to Simon. Even though verse 23 stresses that Simon is full of bitterness and captive to sin, Simon is still given that invitation to repent of his wickedness in verse 22. All around us, day by day, we hear of the evils which exist within our human society. Today we're expert at identifying such sins and wrongs among us, but we are incapable of producing anything remotely like an effective solution. Instead, we blame others for our ills. And the frustration we feel at our powerlessness, it may explain why social media is used to cruelly cancel so many people. It's easy to blame others for what's wrong with the world. Many today have noted how little scope there is for forgiveness in social media and in public life. And I think the reason is that forgiveness depends on a willingness to accept that part of the problem lies in our own hearts. There's little incentive to accept that if we cannot find or recognize a way for human hearts to be changed. Here, though, we're reminded that the gospel word has this unique authority to transform our human hearts. Uniquely, the gospel word speaks of the gift of forgiveness to any who are willing to repent. If Simon was offered that here, surely that offer of a changed heart is there for others too today. Now in verse 24, Simon seems to acknowledge this unique authority as he asks Peter to pray for him. It's a confession that Jesus is the true and the only king. We're not told what happened to Simon after this. And despite our curiosity, it doesn't really matter. What matters in these verses is that Peter has maintained the unique authority of the gospel word which Philip first preached in Samaria. It would have been a disaster if Peter had accepted Simon's money. He would have allowed Simon to let loose a, a deformed gospel that was no gospel at all for the Samaritans. And in our generation, we must be careful to protect the unique authority and power of the gospel word too. We must be clear that the message about Jesus Christ is utterly unique in that it comes as a gift. And we must be clear that it's utterly unique in that it can change our human hearts. Well, finally, we turn to verses 14 to 17, our third point. I believe these verses speak of the unique blessing of the gospel word. You see, in these verses, we are told how Samaritan and Jewish believers are brought together by the gift of the Holy Spirit. We may not appreciate the real significance of this if, and the way it's done unless we ponder the massive nature of this step. We must recall, remember, God's plan since Abraham's day has been to bring blessing to the nations of the whole world. With the completion of the ministry of Jesus Christ, his resurrection and ascension, that purpose of God is now able to become a reality. And that's why the book of Acts is framed as an account of how the gospel word was brought from Jerusalem to Rome. For blessing to come to the nations, to us, the gospel word has to jump across the human barriers which bring so much division in our world. Rob mentioned those barriers when we were looking at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, in fact. 
Hard to appreciate the massive barrier between the Jews and Samaritans at this time. Echoes of this type of division can be seen in Israel today where we find Jews and Palestinians separated by a wall. So to some extent in the division between different communities in Northern Ireland. This division between Jews and Samaritans is mentioned from time to time within the Gospels. We told the Jews would avoid traveling in Samaritan areas. But perhaps one of the most helpful ways for us to understand this unique blessing of the gospel, the gospel word, is to compare, or you don't have to look it up, but to just to compare this passage here in Acts chapter 8 with something that happened in Luke chapter 9. Back in chapter, Luke chapter 9, we read of the brothers James and John seeking permission to call down fire on a Samaritan village. Here we find that same John traveling into Samaria on a mission to lay the foundation of true unity between Jews and Samaritans. The purpose of the visit by Peter and John was to lay the foundation of this unique blessing which the gospel brings to the nations, to the different peoples of our world. See, the unity between Jewish and Samaritan believers is not going to be a human, just papering over the cracks sort of unity. And to recognize this, we need to grasp why Peter and John had to make this trip to Samaria. We need to see why the Holy Spirit was not given when the Samaritans believed uh, in what Philip had told them about Jesus. Now, passages like this in, in the book of Acts are often misunderstood and misused by Christians. Particularly in a book like Acts, we find records of events, and we must interpret them properly. Because they're not events which automatically map onto our Christian discipleship today. The reception of the Holy Spirit by the Samaritans is not intended to be a normative experience for Christians today. You cannot make sense of other episodes in Acts. When did the rest of the New Testament? If you try to manufacture for us today a sort of two-stage experience of the Holy Spirit out of this particular incident and event here in Acts 8. The normal Christian experience of the Holy Spirit is made clear in passages like Galatians 3. Paul asks the Galatians to reflect on how they received the Spirit. And it's clear that they received the Holy Spirit by believing the message that they heard about a crucified Christ. That's where their new life came from. Now sometimes people argue that Peter and John had to come to Samaria because there was something defective in Philip's preaching or something defective in the faith of the Samaritans. It's hard to accept this given that Philip is described in Acts chapter 6 as a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. It's hard to accept this given that we're told about Simon's false faith here, but not told anything about an inadequacy in the faith of the other Samaritans. The truth is that this trip by Peter and John is necessary so the Samaritans are viewed as 100% real believers in Jesus Christ. There is a profound unity in Jesus Christ, which comes through accepting the apostolic, biblical witness to the life and work of Jesus. With, the, with that historical division between the Jews and the Samaritans, it would have been easy to accept the foundation of a sort of a Samaritan church through a Samaritan gospel. Twin tracks are the easy option when the gospel is faced by deep human divisions. Divisions of ethnicity and status, of course, they exist in our human society. They're all around us. They exist in Christian communities too. 
It's easy to accept the status quo of those divisions, but the gospel word is designed within the plan of God to bring the same blessing and a unique unity to people no matter what their background may be. Sometimes, of course, language can be a barrier, but all our human divisions are to be addressed by the gospel word. The gospel word, that is a big theme running through Acts, this passage in particular. There is a unity to be found in this gospel word through its foundation in the apostolic eyewitness testimony. It's impossible, a unity that's impossible to create in any other way. The danger, our danger is that we quench the gift of the Holy Spirit within our Christian churches by not working at the heart unity which the Spirit gives to us. So in Ephesians 4, Paul calls believers to live a life worthy of the calling we've received to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. The visit of Peter and John to Samaria laid the foundation for that great calling we have as Christians. And in our varied, divided society today, it's more important than ever that we heed this. Now, sometimes we ask the wrong questions of a passage like this because we want to be reassured about our own personal experience of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we may seek reassurance that we really are Christians through particular experiences of the Holy Spirit. But here we're challenged to see that the true experience of the Holy Spirit is seen in our putting in the effort to live out that calling of unity which the gospel word has given to us. The heart work of the Holy Spirit, remember, transformed the Apostle John from someone who wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village to someone who rejoiced in the response of the Samaritans here. That same heart work needs to be demonstrated in the life of our church. When that happens, any Christian community is equipped to be part of God's great purpose to bless the nations and all those around us. So here is the message or the theme of this momentous passage in Acts chapter 8. Christians and churches must never lose confidence in the unique, the wonderful power of this gospel word about the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel word, it points to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It never points to human beings, not even Christians. By its nature, therefore, it's unique. And this gospel word has a unique power and authority to transform our human hearts. It's a gift because human resources and human effort can never change our hearts and the hearts of others. And this gospel word also brings the blessing of a unique unity to our human relationships. It's the calling of Christians who are given the Holy Spirit to make that a reality by obedience to the apostolic word. No wonder then the gospel word brought great joy to the city in Samaria. There's nothing more precious for us as human beings. We can have confidence that it will transform our hearts and lives and it will transform the lives of others. And so we can be confident in boldly committing ourselves to its work today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you in your mercy for reminding us of all that this precious word about the Lord Jesus Christ is and continues to be for us today. We thank you that the gospel points to this mighty, unique figure of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We thank you that this gospel word has a unique authority and ability to change our human hearts. And we thank you for that unique blessing which it brings in joining together people who have been very divided in the past. Lord, may we rejoice in this gospel, have confidence in it, and look to you to be at work in our lives and the lives of those around us through it to the glory of our great Saviour Jesus. Amen.